If you love Snapped, Women Who Murder, you're going to love listening to true crime or mystery titles on Audible. The audio title I'm diving into again is one of my favorites to revisit, Mindhunter by John Douglas and Mark Ulshaker. Even if you think you know the details of the cases, former FBI unit chief John Douglas took on from documentaries or the scripted show, the audio title goes above and beyond in bringing you along with him in his career, trying to catch serial killers and serial perpetrators. He used psychological profiling to dive into the minds of notorious criminals. The title includes his hunt for a killer in Alaska, the Green River Killer, and so much more. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. It is the home of storytelling after all. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. That's audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. This episode is brought to you in part by June's Journey. Picture it, the glamour of the roaring 20s wrapped in a mystery that only you can solve. Dive into June Parker's captivating quest to uncover scandalous family secrets. With your keen eye for detail, find hidden clues and solve mind-boggling puzzles. It's all about observation, intrigue, and drama. But beware, each clue leads deeper into a thrilling storyline filled with danger and romance. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Your adventure awaits. Hi, Snap listeners. Stay tuned at the end of the episode for a sneak peek at Oxygen's new Snap Notorious special, The Cleveland Strangler, airing this Saturday, July 24th at 9, 8 central, only on Oxygen. They were a fun-loving couple searching for lasting love. She was really sweet, and she made my dad really happy. They had a lot of fun times together. She was a very independent woman. I really, truly believe that they had something great. Until a peaceful Easter Sunday turns into a horrific nightmare. 911, what's the address of your emergency? That's when he says, there they go, there they go. What first appears to be a random crime reveals itself to be anything but. It seemed to have a purpose to us. Who might have had a reason to want to do that to them? The search for the truth will unravel a deadly web of deception and betrayal. She just wasn't the woman that he thought that she was. We knew from the beginning that this was bull This is personal. You shot me. Oh, that's a lot. It was all piecing together what the real motive for this crime was. Someone was murdered. Please tell me that's not real. She got herself into a situation where she couldn't get herself out. I never thought in a million years that it would ever come to something like this. March 31st, 2013. It's 10.30 p.m. on Easter Sunday in the small town of Riverside, Ohio, when the local police department receives an alarming 911 call. 911, what's the address of your emergency? What's going on? What's going on? I think I got gunshots fired. I think I just heard three shots. After the cryptic 911 call, Riverside police officers rush to the scene. 
where they find a woman crying over the body of a man lying motionless in the front yard. When they arrived, he was awake. He was on the ground. Uh, there was a towel that was being applied to his side. We could see it was a gunshot wound. He was shot twice. He was shot in the chest and shot in the thigh. The woman identifies herself as 40-year-old Nicole Price. The man on the ground is her 45-year-old boyfriend, John Grochak. I'm thinking, you know, he's been shot. He's going to make it. He's going to be OK. And I kept telling him to hold on. They're coming. Hold on. You're hoping for the best, but it didn't look good. He was in serious trauma. Born in 1967, John Grochek grew up in the Lake Erie suburb of Fremont, Ohio, the youngest child in a large family. We had five sisters and a brother. They all grew up in the home together. My dad was very close with his sisters and his brother. They spent a lot of time together. As John became a teenager, he developed a love for the outdoors. He taught himself how to fish and do all kinds of stuff. He was close with his mom and dad, but he wanted to be outside. He had a really big, booming laugh. He was a very funny and loud, outgoing individual. And he had a big heart, and he was always making people laugh. In 1990, at 23 years old, John started his own plumbing company. He was truly a god when it came to plumbing. I've never seen a plumber as fast as him. I learned a lot from John. John eventually met and married a woman named Sylvia Schaffler, and the couple soon started a family. My mom and my dad had three children together, uh, my sister Chelsea, me, and my brother Jonathan. Their marriage was always great. They were a team, and they were kind of like best friends, and I really loved that about them. My mom managed my dad's plumbing business and things like that and stayed at home. He went back and forth from different contracting jobs. But John and Sylvia's marriage didn't last. My mom and my dad were married for 13 years, and they split up when I was seven. But they always remained really close friends. John wasn't single for long. In 2004, he met and fell in love with a 23-year-old woman named Jamie Balwig. I remember when I first met John, and uh, he seemed like he was a really nice fella. They got along really well. And Jamie, she seemed to be happy. Jamie had three kids. He had a real good relationship with them. He loved them kids to death. She had multiple fathers for her children. And when my dad came into her life, he completely rescued her. Like John, Jamie had been raised in a big family. In our family, there are two boys, two girls. Um, I'm the oldest. She's five years younger than me. We lived in the burbs. Jamie was a bit more headstrong than her siblings. Jamie, she had a mind of her own, and she always did what she thought she wanted to do, no matter what I said. I mean, she was more, I don't know if you want to call it rebellious. My sister dropped out of school in eighth grade. She just stopped going to school, and she just never went back. She decided she was going to go off and do things on her own. 
It was Jamie's bold and fun-loving spirit that captured John Grachek's attention when the couple met in 2004. She was in her 20s, and he was in his late 30s. She met up with John and fell in love with him. And she came to us, and she said, I'm going to marry this man. They went out, got married, and that was it. There was no talking, no planning. It was just all instinct. They just jumped into it. The couple had two children, a son and a daughter. And for the next five years, everything seemed perfect. They seemed great for each other, and she was a little younger than my dad, so I feel like she brought out that fun-loving side to my dad. But John and Jamie's marriage began to fracture in 2011. I think he came to a point in his life to where he wanted to make something for himself. You know, she didn't work, so it was kind of like he was the only person that was bringing the income into the house. So that put a lot of stress on him, and she was too young and not settled down, and John had a different mindset than what she did. John and Jamie separated in 2011, and John filed for divorce the following spring. Then, in the summer of 2012, John met a 39-year-old named Nicole Price. He went out drinking one night, and he winked at Nikki and, and went on from there. We seen each other every single day after that. So then we moved in together in Riverside in 2012, the day before Thanksgiving. Nicole was a sweetheart. She had her own place. She worked a good job. I mean, she took care of herself. She was a very independent woman. That was a big thing in John's eyes because that's what he wanted was help in the relationship. He didn't want to be the only provider. Those who knew John best say his time with Nicole was the happiest of his life. He was just glowing and seemed like so content. When he met Nicole, it was just like a new light to his life. Sadly, tragedy strikes just four months later in March of 2013. John has been shot twice by an unknown assailant. Emergency personnel are working very quickly to try to get the victim into the ambulance. He was removed by our medics to a level one trauma center. As they arrive on the scene, police investigators are just as baffled by the inexplicable crime. You're running through and you're going, okay, is this a random crime? Who would do something like this to John? You run the gambit of what this could be. You could even get into a situation where it's people that aren't even adversaries to each other. They're out of the house and they're drinking. Things get out of hands, they have an argument, and somebody ends up getting shot. So you're building it basically from the ground up. Coming up, Riverside police uncover telling clues inside the crime scene. We were able to see inside the house that there was clearly a struggle. I just started hearing scuffle, and then I started hearing the gunshots. And the search for a motive uncovers a larger mystery. Something's very wrong here. This was not a, a home invasion. There's a lot of trying to figure out what happened. Riverside, Ohio, 45-year-old John Grachek is fighting for his life 
after being shot twice at his home in a sudden and violent attack. As John is rushed to the nearest hospital, Riverside detectives try to make sense of the crime scene. Our evidence technicians were putting back the physical mechanics of what happened. We were able to see inside the house that there was clearly a struggle because things were moved out of place and disheveled and items were kind of strewn. We found bullet holes in the wall through the closet door, drywall dust, blood spatter. We did recover two bullets, basically one that was fairly intact and one that was kind of in two pieces. They were small caliber. They were not able to recover any shell casings. That can mean two things. It can mean that the shooter recovered the shell casings and took them with them. That was not likely in this scenario because of how quickly everything had evolved. So pretty quickly, investigators were able to determine that this possibly involved a revolver, which does not eject the shell casings. They stay in the cylinder. To try and determine exactly what happened, detectives speak with John's girlfriend, Nicole Price. We needed to find some things out immediately. We wanted to try to get all the information we could at the time from the living girlfriend. His girlfriend, Nicole, was very upset, very shook up. Nicole tells the detectives that her and John's evening had started out like any other. We spent Easter together. We went to the store. When we came back home, my uh, oldest son was there. He left, but he said he'd probably come back. John was relaxing on the couch, and I was in the kitchen. John got up to use the restroom, and that's when I heard a knock at the door. I'm thinking it's my son. But instead of being her son, Nicole says the person at the door was a man she didn't recognize. And he was pointing a gun right at her. He was like inside, and I just turned around and screamed and ran towards the family room. At the time I'm running towards the family room, John's coming out of the bathroom. So I see him like walking towards the man. John starts coming down the hallway. John's a fairly big guy. He's coming down the hallway to intercede in to protect Nicole. Basically, the struggle ensues inside the front area of the house. I just dialed 911 and laid the phone down because I didn't know what was happening. And then the man was telling John to get on the floor, get on the floor. And then I just started hearing scuffle, like they're wrestling. And I'm freaking out. And then I start hearing the gunshots. Nicole says the shooter and a second man then fled from the house. John tried to chase after them, but he collapsed in the front yard. It was only then that she realized he'd been shot. I ran over to John, and then he's like holding his side, and then I'm yelling, help, help. As she screamed for her neighbor's help, Nicole says she could see the shooter and the second man running down the street away from her home. The first guy that I seen was the dark-headed one. I didn't know there was a second guy until after they were running from my house. She described them as one was taller than the other. The taller of the two white males had the handgun. The white male with the handgun had, she described as a buzz haircut and some facial hair. 
She didn't get a good look at the shorter of the two individuals. She basically puts the taller, slender one as the one coming through the door first and being the aggressive person forcing her way into the home. There was no information on scene that these were individuals that were known to John or to Nicole. It appeared to be potentially a robbery at this point or some sort of home invasion. But that theory seems less likely when Nicole reveals that the two men didn't try to take anything or even say a word before the shooting began. I don't know why they were there. I didn't know if they wanted money or to kill us. I mean, I didn't know. There were no demands made for any property, any items, any money, any drugs. There were no demands made. We had had no prior issues of home invasions, of shots being fired. We had no calls of that nature in that area. Something's very wrong here. This was not a, a home invasion. This seemed to have a purpose to us. Anytime you have something like this happen, the police come in and they're immediately looking for a motive because that's going to lead them to who might have done this, if the victim had any sort of enemies. While detectives try to discern a motive, there is one thing of which they're certain. Nicole had nothing to do with the crime. From listening to the 911 call, you would have to be a pretty good method actor to be able to pull something off like that. To be a person who's standing there, basically firing a weapon, committing first-degree murder, there was absolutely nothing that gave us any clue that she was being anything but straightforward with us. Investigators are confident Nicole is not a suspect. But who would want to hurt John? John did not have any enemies that I know of and I've known him for a very long time. I hung out with him all the time, and we never had problems with anybody, ever. The first steps would have involved getting any idea if this was a targeted, planned attack on their home, who might have been involved and who might have had a reason to want to do that to them. Detectives speak with neighbors to see if anyone saw in which direction the suspects had fled. As it turns out, several had. In neighborhoods like this, a lot of times neighbors know each other. And it was only 10.30 in the evening. A lot of people are still awake, and it's very unusual to hear gunshots, especially at that time of night. So a lot of people came out to see what was going on. Some of them even witnessed part of the struggle and witnessed suspects running away. The descriptions from the neighbors were that the two men had fled to a vehicle had gotten in the passenger side of the vehicle, a dark-colored vehicle, and that the vehicle then immediately took off, indicating that there had been a driver sitting in the vehicle waiting for these two men, telling investigators there was a third person involved. Coming up, with little to go on, police try to find the shooter and his accomplices before they can vanish. There was an immediate need to track, identify, and apprehend these suspects. Will a chance encounter give investigators the break they need? This is not a coincidence. We know it's not a coincidence at this point. As a SNAP listener, you know the world can be a dangerous and unpredictable place. With every case I learn about, I'm reminded how much I want to prioritize my vigilance and preparation. That's why I use and recommend Simply Safe Home Security. My cameras have alerted me about trespassers and even given me a sense of security knowing my home is safe even when I'm not there. 
Simply Safe offers protection for the whole house with advanced sensors that not only detect break-ins, but fires, floods, and other threats to your home and getting you the help you need for each scenario. The indoor security cameras offer privacy shutters to ensure physical privacy when you want it. Plus, you can try Simply Safe for 60 days risk-free. If you don't love it, return your system for a full refund. Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind. I want you to have it too. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com/snapped. That's simplysafe.com/snapped. There's no safe like Simply Safe. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay on top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. Plus, you can send with confidence, knowing your emails are actually reaching your customers thanks to their best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. After 45-year-old John Grawcheck was shot twice in his Riverside, Ohio home, police are on the lookout for three possible suspects. It appears the bad guys have fled and they have a description of a car and which way they were going. Not knowing immediately what motivated this crime, if it was random, if it was individuals looking to break into homes and commit violent acts and not knowing who it was, there was an immediate need to track, identify, and apprehend these suspects. Detectives put out a bolo with the description of the suspect's car. The description that the officers received leaving the area was initially just a larger, noisy, full-size, dark black, potentially dark blue car. Minutes later, a patrol officer in the area spots a similar vehicle. Our officers that are on road patrol encounters a car leaving the area at a high rate of speed and also basically rolls a stop sign in front of them. So he follows the vehicle for about a half a mile and conducts a traffic stop on it. We don't know if this vehicle's involved or not. It's leaving the area, so it's a good assumption. Maybe it's involved. Inside the car is a female driver and two male passengers. They start ordering people out of the vehicle. Driver's a white female. She follows orders. They're able to walk her out of the car, walk her back, get her down on the ground. Very nervous, uh, very upset. She immediately was asking, what's this all about? What's going on? There are two white males in the vehicle. One is taller than the other. One has facial hair. And the one with the facial hair has a buzz haircut. They match a description of the two males that fled from the scene. And multiple people saw both suspects. That's when the decision is made to bring them back to the scene to conduct a live ID. We have those individuals separated in three police cruisers. We bring them back to the scene. 
Back at the Grawcheck residence, detectives ask Nicole if she recognizes any of the people in the cruisers. She walks down, and we use our lighting and flashlights where they can't see her, but she can clearly see their faces. The first male suspect is identified by his driver's license as 29-year-old Gary Webb. Gary Webb is in dark clothing, white male, slender. And they opened up the door, and then I knew it was him. And I said, yes, that's him. Says so that the man that had the gun? She said, yes, it was. I said, is that the man that shot John? She said, yes, it is. The second male suspect is identified as 24-year-old Jacob Gibson. Nicole IDs him as the shooter's accomplice that she'd seen running away from her home. Jacob turns out to be a shorter stature, stouter, white male dressed in all dark clothing. To detectives' surprise, Nicole also recognizes the female who'd been driving the getaway car, not from the shooting earlier that evening, but from her boyfriend, John Grawcheck's personal life. When she looked in the back seat of that police cruiser, she said, that's Jamie Grawcheck, his ex-wife. I see Jamie's in there. And she wasn't even there, but I just felt like she had something to do with it. But what was John's ex-wife doing with the two men who'd presumably tried to kill him? To find out, investigators haul Jamie and the two male suspects back to the police station for questioning. At the same time, Nicole Price heads to the hospital, desperate to know John's condition. I was really worried about John. The detective told me I could finally go to the hospital and see him. But when Nicole arrives at the emergency room, she's met with devastating news. The doctor came in and said he worked on him for a long time. He couldn't save him. It was terrible. It's the worst day of life. <laughs> John was struck twice, once in the leg, once in the chest. The bullet entered uh, what would be his left side of his body and traveled across his lung and struck his heart and pierced his heart on both sides. So that's just not a wound that you can survive. I was at my cousin's house and we were having a sleepover and I got a call from Nicole. It was like close to midnight and she was hysterical. And I was like, what's going on? She could barely talk and she was like, your dad's been shot. We ran upstairs to tell my aunt and uncle and we finally got a hold of Miami Valley Hospital and that's when they told us that he had passed away. I did not think that it was possible that this could happen. I was very shocked and very sad that somebody took the life of my best friend. And me knowing that I'll never get to talk to him, never hang out with him again, it really hurt me. At the Riverside Police Department, investigators separate their three suspects, Jamie Grawcheck, Gary Webb, and Jacob Gibson. John has passed. This is a murder investigation. It's now a homicide. The first person we spoke with was Gary Webb. He's been arrested before. He understood his rights. He had some crimes of violence, aggravated burglary. I believe he was on parole currently for aggravated burglary. All we're here to do is ask you some questions and ask you to cooperate with us and tell us the truth, OK? Yeah, I'm moving in trouble, sir. All right, don't well, really know. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I shouldn't have been there. Mr. Webb comes up with three or four different versions of 
what happened, but he doesn't deny that he was there. The crime we're investigating is murder. Holy shit. Okay? That gentleman that was shot tonight didn't make it. Holy shit. That's terrible. Well, all I can do is be straight up with you, okay? That is terrible, sir. That is terrible. I really, really wish I was not there. Despite Nicole Price's statement, Gary denies being the shooter. He also claims that he just met Jamie Grawcheck earlier that night. So that's the first time you met her? Yes, sir. And her and Jake are boyfriend and girlfriend, you say? I thought they were. He basically tells us that he only knows Jamie through Jacob Gibson. And that's pretty much what he states the whole time is that I'm only here because I know Gibson. Gary also reveals what he claims is the real reason the trio had visited the Grachek's home that evening. But it's not what detectives expect. They were there to buy drugs at Mr. Grachek's residence. Who knocked on the door? Jake. I didn't know the people. I've never met the people in my life. He basically stated that they were there to buy heroin. It goes south, it goes bad. And there ends up being a fight and a struggle between Jacob Gibson and John Grachek. And the next thing I know, they're in there fighting over a gun. I don't know if Jake has a gun or if he had the gun, but the gunshots start going off. And he starts to run. Seconds later, Jacob Gibson's behind him, and they run from the area and flee. Gary Webb claims he has no idea where the gun came from or where it is now. But after a quick background check, detectives find his story suspicious. We're able to ascertain pretty quickly that the, the house we're at, Mr. Grotchek's residence, there's no history there of any sort of drug complaints. He has no drug history in his background. Police call him on it. They say they know that's not true because they know that John is not a drug dealer. You put yourself there, you saw what went down, all I'm asking for is the truth. I'm telling you the truth, sir. You weren't there to buy heroin. That's crap, okay? It's, everything you're saying so far is a lie. I didn't know he was going to shoot the guy. I swear I didn't want this to happen. I didn't know anything was like this was going to happen. Coming up, investigators question Jacob Gibson and Jamie Grawcheck, who both give a very different version of events. Gary was going to rob Gary had a gun. But who was the true ringleader behind the crime? And what was their motive? We've got Webb, who points the finger at Gibson. Gibson points the finger at Webb. Jamie, do you think you can help us piece together tonight what happened? I'll tell you exactly what happened. After John Grachek was gunned down in his Riverside home, police have arrested his ex-wife, Jamie Grachek, and her companions, Gary Webb and Jacob Gibson, after the trio were caught fleeing the scene together. We bring back all three suspects to the police department and begin the process of interviewing them. And they're all absolutely willing to talk to us. Investigators have already questioned Gary Webb who claims that the three suspects were at John's house to buy drugs. He's adamant that from the whole time, he didn't have the gun, he didn't shoot the gun, that he didn't kill Mr. Grachek. Who produced the gun? I don't know, sir. That's awful convenient. I was there, I didn't have the gun, it wasn't me, I didn't come to the door, I didn't get identified. 
When detectives press him further, Gary changes his tune. So the truth is, is that Jake did have a gun. Yes, sir. And that Jake was the one that went to the door and knocked on the door. Yes, sir. He said Gibson's the one that shot the gun. And that Gibson's the one that went in the house. But when investigators question Jacob Gibson, he gives a very different story. And then why are you looking at me for? Because bad things happen tonight. No, I'm just saying, why are you right. looking at me for? I never right saw anybody. Well, I'm gonna let you know that I ain't, I ain't nobody, I ain't no murderer. I've never shot nobody in my life. I've never hurt nobody in my life. Gary puts you and this guy, first story he told us is you two were fighting over a gun. And the second story he puts is that you shot him. Oh, that's a lie. As we're talking to Mr. Gibson, he's basically claiming that Gary Webb's the one who brought the firearm over. He's the one who went through the door first. When Gary had a gun, I knocked on the door, the lady answered the door. Okay, then we got in a scuffle. Gary took the gun and shot the gentleman. Police ask Jacob what happened to the murder weapon. I don't know where the gun's at. Somebody's got enough partner. I don't know. Police believe that Jacob Gibson is being fairly truthful about what happened that night. His version of events is matching up with what we've learned at the scene from Nicole Price. Nicole was able to see pretty clearly who was there when she answered the door and which of the men had the gun. And she was able to identify that man, and that was Gary Webb. But while it's clear to investigators who pulled the trigger, the motive behind the shooting remains a mystery. Just before daybreak, detectives turned to Jamie Grochek, the only suspect with a clear connection to the victim. When Jamie Grochek is interviewed, she's wanting to be cooperative. She's saying, I'm not real sure why I'm here. Detectives inform Jamie that she's being questioned in a murder investigation. Someone was murdered? That's correct. Someone was murdered? Detectives tell Jamie that her ex-husband has been killed. No, they didn't. Please tell me that's not true. Please tell me that's not true. Uh, unfortunately, I can't. I can't tell you that. No, oh my God. I love John. Her reaction is pretty dramatic. She's crying and she's, you know, screaming, really upset to hear the news that he's died. The one thing that I noticed that was really interesting in the interview, and you always watch people's body language very closely and what they're doing. She was wailing to the point that it seemed forced, and I noticed that there were no tears. And I remember even turning to Sergeant Trago, and I'm like, she's not crying. <laughs> she's crying without crying, no tears. When people have genuine reaction, to a traumatic event like that, it's genuine. There's tears. But Jamie's demeanor suddenly changes when police confront her with Jacob's confession. Jamie, do you think you can help us piece together tonight what happened? I'll tell you exactly what happened, I don't care. Jamie confirms detective suspicions when she denies that the group had gone to John's house to buy drugs. Instead, she says the trio had robbery on their minds when they knocked on her ex-husband's door. She told detectives that nobody had gone there with the intention 
of harming or killing anyone, and that the only planned motivation was to rob John for money that they believed he might have. Jamie tells police that she and her boyfriend, Jacob Gibson, were desperate for money. So they asked Jacob's friend, Gary, to help them rob someone. The original plan was to do a robbery of a drug dealer in the city of Dayton. But Jamie tells police that when the trio found the drug dealer they were looking for, they realized he didn't have any money on him. And that didn't work out well. They didn't get anything from this drug dealer. So they're now all sitting down in the east side of Dayton in her car saying, well, what do we do now? Well, then Jake's like, you got you got any ideas? And I was like, well, my ex-husband, I was like, well, no, he's a big guy. He's going to fight you. To investigators' surprise, Jamie admits that she offered up her ex-husband, John Grachek, as a mark. She basically is the one that says, I know where we could go. My ex, I can take you there. I know that he has cash on hand and that he's self-employed, and we can probably get money there. Have you known him to have money? How much money do you think? He would have. I don't know. I thought he'd have a couple thousand. A couple thousand. Have you known him to carry that before? Mm -hmm. So they decide at that time, after Jamie supplies them with who and what, that they're going to go commit a robbery at Jung's house. But Jamie insists the plan was only to rob her ex-husband, not to kill him. Do you see him with a firearm? No, I didn't see any gun whatsoever. Never saw anybody with it. No, he had that knife, and I put it next to my seat. I was like, no, we're not doing anything by She claimed to not have any idea that they were going to hurt John. They were just going to go in and steal the money and leave. If someone's going to commit a crime like that, they're not going to take any guns? That made no sense to us whatsoever. Do either of these guys, do you think, has Jacob ever met him, John? No. No? Do you no. know Gary ever has? No, neither of them know. So would they have known the house, be able to pick it out? No, I showed them where it was. You showed them where it was. Webb and Gibson never had contact with him. Didn't even know that residence existed and didn't know how to get there. The only reason they ended up there that night with him was because of Jamie Project's information. If this would have worked successfully, what were you guys going to do with the money? Were you guys going to split it? We were going to split it. How were you guys going to split it? I don't know. I guess they were going to split it 50 50, and then Jake was going to give me his half of whatever he could get. Okay. And I didn't do it to hurt anybody. I'm just struggling. Right. Basically, she's the one who lays the framework for he's got the money, he's my ex, so it's good information. Here's how to get there, and I'll, I'll drive you there. And then parks down the street out of sight. She thought out of sight from all witnesses, but it wasn't, and then parks and stays in the car. So she basically ties herself into being the mastermind of a plan of committing a robbery. And during the robbery, John was shot, and now it turns into commission of a felony, and everybody's involved, and now you're wrapped up into a homicide investigation. I want to go into jail. Oh, yeah, you're going to jail tonight. And we can't avoid that. On April 1st, 2013, Jamie Grachek, Jacob Gibson, and Gary Webb 
are all arrested and charged with murder, aggravated burglary, aggravated robbery, and felonious assault. The community was pleased we made arrests very quickly. I think some were shocked when they heard that it was the ex-wife. It was just really hard to find out that Jamie was involved in my dad's murder. She was my stepmom, and for her to do that was just really heartbreaking and unforgivable. I never thought in a million years that it would ever come to something like this. Coming up, new evidence suggests there's much more to John Grochek's murder than a robbery gone wrong. I think it came all at once and just pushed her over the edge. Now it was all piecing together what the real motive for this crime was. Within 24 hours of John Grochek's murder, his estranged wife, Jamie Grochek, Gary Webb, and Jacob Gibson have been arrested for the crime. Jamie insists that the shooting was the unfortunate result of a robbery attempt gone bad. But police believe there might be more to the crime. We knew from the beginning that this was bull This is personal. Detectives circle back to John Grochek's girlfriend, Nicole Price, to find out more about John and Jamie's relationship. In secondary interviews with Nicole Price, we're finding out, too, that there were some other underlying incidents that happened. Police learned that John and Jamie had officially separated seven months before the shooting. So toward the end of my dad and Jamie's relationship, things started to get crazy, and she just wasn't the woman that he thought that she was. Jamie was using drugs, and my dad decided to leave. But even though John had filed for divorce in 2012, there was a period of time afterwards when he and Jamie hadn't completely cut ties. John and her still dated off and on through the whole time of the separation up until the point he met Nikki. With Nicole in his life, John had decided it was finally time to cut Jamie off completely. She was jealous he was moving on with his life and that it was without her. She lost her support system. She lost, she lost everything when John left her. Jamie was spiraling and spiraling out of control to where she was involved in drugs. I don't know if there was any way for Jamie to be back on her feet. She became more self-destructive. Nicole says it wasn't long after she and John started dating that Jamie started to harass them. Well, he got his phone number changed, and then she started messaging him on Facebook. Blocked her from that one, and then she made up fake ones, tried to contact him through there. There was an incident in January of that same year where she had taken a vehicle and drove it through the front yard of their home, cutting up the grass in front of their home as a threat. It was like 3 o'clock in the morning when he heard a real loud car, because it was a cul-de-sac. John seen her when he opened the door. We did call the police, and they came. She was basically just putting herself where she didn't belong, but I don't think there was anything that was ever, there was ever charges that came out of it. I know there's protection orders, I think, that were issued. Jamie had continued to engage in verbal altercations with both of them whenever the opportunity came. Jamie's drug abuse and out-of-control behavior had eventually led to her losing custody of both her and John's children. 
The children were temporarily placed in foster care while John waited for the courts to award him full custody. John was going to visit his kids weekly, and then eventually I started going to, to get to know the children. He was working his case plan from the children's services workers. He was doing everything he needed to do to work his case plan and get reunified with the kids, and Jamie just wasn't doing anything. I think the court was agreeing with John that he was going to be the better choice to be the full-time parent. They had had hearings in the past where Jamie had made threats that if John gets these kids, I'll kill him. I'll kill him before he gets these kids. John was not afraid of Jamie. John was hoping that she would just move on with her life. The final custody hearing was scheduled for April 8th, just eight days after John's murder. The children were going to move in April 9th. It had been decided he was getting them a week before it happened. I think it came all at once for Jamie. It was too much losing John. And you know the thought of losing children, I think, just pushed her over the edge. I think the motive in this crime was pure vengeance and revenge. It seems like John was targeted from the get-go. But while the theory seems likely, the evidence is circumstantial at best. That is, until Jamie's boyfriend and co-conspirator Jacob Gibson decides to make a deal with prosecutors. Jacob Gibson approached us and indicated that he was willing to testify, and he would be willing to testify against Jamie Grachek in a prosecution of her. When Jamie learns of Jacob's plan to testify against her, she also accepts a plea deal, as does Gary Webb. On April 9th, 2014, Gary Webb pleads guilty to murder and robbery. Gary Webb received 18 years to life as his sentence for this crime. In November 2014, Jamie Grachek pleads guilty to involuntary manslaughter, complicity to commit aggravated robbery, and aggravated burglary. Jamie received 21 years in prison for her involvement in this crime. Jacob Gibson received a 15 years to life sentence for his part in this crime. It's still difficult for the families of both John and Jamie Grachek to make sense of this horrible tragedy. I was really angry, and when I found out that Jamie was responsible for my dad's murder, it was such a almost unforgiving, terrible feeling. Like, I, I don't think I'll ever be able to forgive her for what she did. I was just stunned. Like somebody hit me right in the face or something. It's really a shame that she got herself into a situation where she couldn't get herself out. She was the worst person at making decisions. She also had no impulse control. So I think that she saw an opportunity to get a little cash. It was a, it was a tragedy. She didn't think about her kids when she sent them guys to the house to take money from their father. But instead of taking money, they took his life. Jamie Gratchick will be released in 2035 at the age of 53. John and Jamie's children are being raised by members of the Gratchick family. For more information on Snapped, go to Oxygen.com.
In 2009, investigators make a grisly discovery in the neighborhood of Mount Pleasant in Cleveland, Ohio. The scene was extremely disturbing, like something out of Dante's Inferno. 11 women who had mysteriously vanished are found murdered at the home of Anthony Sowell, infamously known as the Cleveland Strangler. You could see the demon, the devil from the pit of hell. There's bodies in the wall, in the backyard, in the basement. You got a head in a bucket. This guy, we know for a fact, was living where these bodies were. What kind of person does that? This was a jaw-dropping case. Every day, the story got darker and darker. Anthony would use drugs, alcohol, his charm to lure women to his house. They were vulnerable. They were easy prey for him. He was a predator, serial killer, and rapist. Choking with hands, that's what being drained would say. We'll hear first-hand accounts from five women who remarkably managed to survive his attacks and heroically escape from his house of horrors. He raped me, brutally raped me, and he says, if you scream, I'm gonna kill you. So I kicked out the scream window, I jumped. As he walked me to the bathroom, sitting on that floor, my body, and it had no head. I thought, this is how I'm going to die. Hey, everybody, I'm James. I'm Jimmy. You definitely want to hear us on Small Town Murder, our crazy podcast about murder in small towns, pretty yeah. aptly named. And what do you think of when you think of a small town? Oh, um, Terrifying, Terrifying murder, exactly. Yeah. See, you know. <laughs> and that's what we have for you, chock full of it every week. We have two episodes a week, one regular on Thursdays, and one express little shorter episode on Fridays where you're going to hear the craziest stories from small towns. We'll talk a little bit about the town to give you a setting, yeah. and then we'll get into some of the wildest, craziest murders you've ever heard of, mixing in some humor here yeah. to cut the darkness. Keep it light. Just a little bit and keep it light. You definitely want to join us there twice a week you can't beat it come and join us small town murder podcast subscribe today follow small town murder on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen to small town murder early and ad free right now on wondery plus